Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering this summer on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for a light breakfast at 9.15. We look forward to connecting with you. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Joslin, and I'm the teaching pastor here. And I am a Dallas Cowboys fan, so I did not appreciate that comment from Larry. He knew what he was doing, and I was not all right with that. But it's okay. It's a place of forgiveness. We'll just we'll move on, and we'll have a good morning together, I hope. You guys like that joke a little too much, though, but that's okay. I'll forgive you, too. Oh, man. Today, we are wrapping up our series on Flourish, and we are talking about sexuality and sex. Um, and before we dive into that, uh, yeah, I'm just going to like kind of name it. We're just going to be direct today. Uh, but before I, I, we get too far into that, I just want to say thank you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I got to preach with Steffi, which was just a, a huge honor for me, my wife. Uh, and you guys were so kind. I, I think she's amazing. Uh, but you guys welcomed her and were so kind to her. Um, we've got such good feedback back uh, from that. It was just encouraging because sometimes it feels kind of vulnerable inviting uh, your spouse that you care about to be in front of a bunch of people and you don't know how they're going to treat her. So thank you for, for being kind as we preached on marriage. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's awesome. Um, I did invite her back for today's message on sex and she said, nope, we're good. <laughs> so, um, so it's just me today. Sorry. I know it's, uh, it's not quite as good as, as her and me. Um, but you know, truthfully, and jokes aside, as we dive in uh, to sex, I, I think this is a, a very important message. Um, and not because I'm giving it, but because where our culture is at with sex, how the church has interacted with sex and sexuality, there is so much brokenness, there's so much mixed messaging, um, and our culture has just been going at like warp speed in different directions around sexuality. And so anchoring us in the truth of Scripture is, is so important. Um, and as I was preparing for this message, I, I'll be honest, I, I saw it on the calendar and I started reading, uh, listening to podcasts, listening to sermons, reading articles, starting back in like January or February. I, I really wanted to be prepared uh, for this message because I think it's so important. Waterstone hasn't done a sermon on sex in about six years. Um, and you can imagine the change that's happened in culture in those six years. Um, but the downside of all that preparation was on Friday night, I had a sermon that was 14 pages long. <laughs> and usually if I have a four-page sermon. I preach for about 35 minutes, so I'll let you do the math. <laughs> I was able to cut it down. We're going to shoot for a tight 45 today, okay? So, um, but if, uh, if you start to feel like, oh my gosh, he's just kind of going on and on. This is 40 minutes. We got to get to lunch. Just, just realize it could have been worse, okay? I could have gone for a lot longer and 40 minutes or 45 minutes is, is great. So, all right. So enough, enough of that. As we dive in today, like I said, I, I know so many of us, we, we've heard mis, mes, mixed messages about sexuality. We've heard messages from the church about sexuality, from culture. We come into this space and there is so much brokenness, hurt, uh, trauma, things that have happened to us, things that, that we've done in our past. And so as we start today, I just want to give a couple caveats that I think are, are really critical and, and super important for this conversation that we're going to have today about sex and sexuality. So caveat number one is that this message today is simply for followers of Jesus. So if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not given your life to, to Christ, if you have not given your allegiance to him, if you're not following him and pursuing him, then, then this message is not for you. It, it's outside of, I'm not trying to put moral commands over your life. 
Okay, and you need to hear that because sometimes what the church has done is say this is our vision for sexuality and we want everyone to follow it. And that's not what this message is about. It's about how Christians follow Jesus' teaching in regards to our our sex lives and our sexuality that leads to flourishing. And that leads to caveat number two, which everyone, follower of Jesus or, or not follower of Jesus needs to hear, is that today's message is pastoral and not political. One of the things that the the church has done is we've taken the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of Scripture and the vision for sexuality and sex, and we've said it's our job to legislate that, and and we've politicized that, and we've said everyone needs to follow our beliefs, and they need to do what we do. And and that's actually not biblical. I I know that might sound harsh and and hard for some of you to hear, but in one of the passages we're going to look at today, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and Paul's vision for sexuality. He sets that up in in chapter 5 by saying, who am I as a follower of Jesus to judge those who are outside of the church? He says, we have no room. What is it to us what they do? And, And so that's our heart today is that if you're joining us online or you're here, there is not judgment coming from the space of Christians to non-Christians. We're not trying to politicize. It's not about civil liberties. This is about what does it look like for Christians to flourish with our sexuality and our sex lives as we follow Jesus. And so this isn't a space for judgment. And if we want to engage in this space, we have to follow the model of Jesus. And that's caveat number three is that Jesus engaged with sexual sinners in a way that was loving and welcoming. He he just leveled the playing field. And the alternative that we have, the the other choice we have, is to engage with this issue, this topic, like the Pharisees did, who who looked down at sexual sinners, who judged them, who who saw people who were not living out the the Christian ideal or or the ideal of God's kingdom and, and judged them. And that's not what this space is. I come before you as someone who has sinned sexually and is a sexual sinner. And all of us are in that space. Jesus completely levels the the, the playing field. And so none of us has room to throw stones or judge others. So those are the three caveats as we dive into this. And if you have grown up in the church or been around the church for any length of time, you know that that's often the message we hear when we hear messages on sex. We feel judged and we feel like we're not doing it right, we're not doing enough, and that's not my heart today. I grew up in uh, the church in the 1990s and early 2000s. Any millennials in the room who grew up in the church around that time, feel free to raise your hands, empathize with you. Did you ever hear a term purity culture? Yes. Okay. So a lot of us grew up with this term purity culture, and this was kind of the the church's vision for sexuality and how they tried to raise a generation to understand sexuality. And and I need you to hear this. The intent was was well-founded. It was trying to teach kids in in an incredibly sexualized and sex-obsessed culture how to live faithfully to Jesus. But while the intent was good, the messaging was, was just awful. And so many people who have come out of the purity culture have, have come out with different traumas and, and shames and guilts, and not because they didn't follow the teachings of purity culture, but because they followed them, and, and it didn't lead to, to the flourishing that this promised. So here's a quick definition. If you're not familiar with purity culture, here's a quick definition of kind of how purity culture operated. 
Purity culture said, all of us have desires. We all have sexual desires. And, and there's a moral standard that God has given us that, that it's a tension. We, we want to have sex. We have sexual desires. And there's a moral standard that says, that's bad. You can't do that. And so you just have to kind of willpower and grit your way through it and make sure you don't do the bad stuff. And then if you do everything right, God will sexually bless your life. He will bring you the spouse of your dreams, and you will have an incredible sex life for the rest of your life. I, it's true. This is what we heard. And you heard it every conference. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Every conference and every retreat I ever went to, this is how the pastor or the preacher introduced himself. Hey, my name is so-and-so. This is my family. That's my smoking hot wife. And the implication was, if you follow Jesus, then God will give you a smoking hot wife. This happened every, you can ask my former students, we would laugh about it. We would like predict, we'd have a bet going, like, do you think he's going to, oh, he said it. Like, it was just everywhere. And, and here's the problem, is this kind of vision for, for willpower, willpower in your way to God's moral standards, it does not work. And it just led to, to messages of shame and, and judgment of you're not doing enough to follow God's will for your life. And so therefore, instead of sexual blessing, you are going to receive, you are going to be damaged goods. You, something is going to be wrong with you. You're not going to get a spouse. You're not going to get, and it was all of these messages of shame. And it led a lot of millennials to grow up and realize that this whole promise of this, this kind of paradigm, this formula, it didn't work. Because some of us grew up and God didn't bring us a spouse. What gives? I did everything right. And, and I have not gotten the spouse that I was promised. And some of us got married and found out that sex is a lot harder than just God blessing it and saying, hey, you waited until marriage and so everything's going to be great for the rest of your life. And some of us growing up in this culture found out that the people who were preaching this culture were abusers and hypocrites. And so this message that led to so much shame and trauma and disappointment came from people who weren't even living it out themselves. And so we kind of are questioning, should we just throw all the scripture out? Like, does scripture have anything to say about my sexuality? Because it didn't lead to flourishing. It led to disillusionment and disappointment and frustration. Now, again, intent was good, but the consequences were not. And I understand the, the, the reasons for a lot of those teachings because our culture is sex-obsessed. We live in a culture of promiscuity. And this is how the culture of promiscuity works. There's, there's a whole nother formula for, for our culture and how its vision for sex works. And it's this. We all have desires. Every one of us has sexual desires. And you just need to find someone that will consent to engaging in those sexual desires with you. And if you find someone who consents to that, then it's just kind of whatever you want goes. Like no inhibitions. Just be completely liberated. Step into it. Do whatever you want. And it's fine. And if you do those three things, then it will lead to sexual salvation. Now, that might sound like a really strong outcome, but, but if you read some of the philosophers over the last 100 years to 150 years, people like uh, Sigmund Freud or Herbert Marcuse or um, Will, Wilhelm uh, Reich, that they have multiple lines that with religious language in it, that this is what they say. If you have sex, 
then sex will produce the ultimate satisfaction in life. It's the closest to heaven that we will experience in this life. And so the message of our culture, this is everywhere, by the way. It's on our Instagram feeds. It's on, it's on Netflix. It's on commercials that we watch in the middle of sports games. I mean, it is everywhere. The more sex you have, the better your life will be. The better your life will be. And the problem is, this also does not work. And so what is the vision? And I'll, I'll try to prove that in a moment. But the, the trouble is, okay, there's elements of truth in both promiscuity culture and in prosperity or uh, uh, purity culture. And the question is, if there's elements of truth, but they miss the mark and it leads us astray, what is the actual biblical vision for sexuality and sex in our lives? And so today we are going to look at a passage from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're just going to walk through the passage verse by verse. And what I want you to see is that Scripture is timeless. Because so many of the things that were going on in the church in Corinth, so many of the conversations they were having about sex, so many things that they were wrestling with in that faith community are the exact same conversations that we're having today. It's timeless and it's powerful and it will produce a vision of freedom in sexuality that I think leads to true flourishing. And so here's where we're going today. We're going to look through this passage and we're going to look at what sex is and what sex isn't. And then we're going to have three applications that Paul gives us about what we do with sex, okay? So what sex is, what sex isn't, and three things that we can do to have a flourishing life with our sexuality. So we're just going to dive straight in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it says this. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. It's a long list. Whew. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so this is Paul setting up his teaching on sexuality, and this is kind of the list that he makes of, of people that will not enter the kingdom. And so why is Paul listing all of these things? Well, he's writing to a church in Corinth that, that Corinth in, in Roman world was the sex capital of the world. They had a temple there that was worshiping sex, and, and the, the all kind of sexual boundaries, they'd just gone full force into let's worship sex, let's do whatever we want, no inhibitions, we can, we can just engage with sex, worship sex, it's all to be celebrated. And they just go full-fledged into this vision of sexual immorality, what Paul calls sexual immorality. And the word he uses there is an interesting word. It's called porneia. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to get what kind of words we get from this word, but it's kind of a junk drawer word. It includes all sorts of things. Now, I'm going to be kind of direct here. I'm not trying to be crass. I'm not trying to be explicit. But culture speaks directly to these things and disciples us just directly in these things. And so we need to understand what it is that Paul is talking about. And so when we see this word sexual immorality, these are some of the things that are included in this junk drawer word definition. It includes adultery, including swinging and open marriages. It includes sleeping with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It includes friends with benefits, hookups, same-sex sexual activity, polyamory, fantasizing about someone else, reading porn, looking at porn, sexualizing yourself in provocative dress, lusting with the eyes, and emotional engagement with someone who is not your spouse. I mean, it's just a junk, it's all pornea. 
And Paul is saying this is what is going on in the church and in the culture at the time. And I am very aware of how quiet it is in the room right now. And it makes us uncomfortable. All of these different things. And what Paul is saying is that in this culture, this pornea, this sexual immorality, he's looking at the Corinthian society and saying those are not vices. Those are things that are celebrated and that people have given themselves over to and have pursued full force. And so he says, don't you know that people who do that don't inherit the kingdom of God? And he has to ask that question because the people in Corinth, in his church, they don't know that. They are struggling to figure out what it means to live faithfully to the ethic of the kingdom of God. And they don't understand all of this sexual immorality. They're trying to figure it out and wrestling with it. And Paul is basically making this point. In the Corinthian culture, desire has become identity. That people's desire, their sexual proclivity, the things that they want sexually, that's how people are identifying in that culture, which is not that different from our own. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, it's a a fascinating book, but he says this, noticing the parallels between Paul's culture and our own, that, that we have made sex a core part of our identity. This is what he says. The simple answer is that sexual desire has emerged in the last 100 years as a primary category for understanding our identity. In biblical times or in ancient Greece, sex was regarded as something the humans did, But today, it is considered to be something vital to who human beings are. Have you felt that shift in our culture? That, that, That we just define, sexuality is core element of defining our personhood. And our culture has just made sex everything. It defines everything about who you are. And when we formed whole communities about Sexual desire, sexual orientation, or or all sorts of different categories that we say, this is a defining characteristic about who I am. This is part of my personhood. And and we've just gone full-fledged as a culture into sex being everything. And and the church, to to combat that, has has tried to have a different message, but I, I think unintentionally, coming out of purity culture and other messages the church has given, we have unintentionally made sex everything as well. We've kind of said that that it's not about your desire being your identity, but for sure your sexual activity defines who you are. That the sexual activity that you engage with is a core part of your identity. And and let me explain what I mean by that in two ways. I I think many people within the church have bought the lie that that sex is the ultimate human experience. That, That everything is about sex and having sex, and we think that that is the height of what it means to be human. And I saw this growing up with all of my middle school buddies, this is a true story, who would pray that God would not come back, that the second coming of Jesus Christ would not come back until they could have sex. <laughs> like, we would pray this. Like, God, I know you want to restore all things and that you are going to reconcile all things, but please just wait until I can have sex at least once. Like the second coming is is less important than my sexual desire and my sexual activity. And we've just elevated it and said, this is ultimate. This is the purpose of your life. Get married, have babies. That's what it means to follow Jesus. 
And so we've lifted it and we've elevated it to be the number one thing in our lives. But the second way we've done it, and it's kind of a mixed message. I think the church is often confused about it because we've also said that the, the activity, sexual activity is your identity because you are defined by whether or not you are a virgin. That, that the spiritual barometer for your life is how much or how little sexual activity you are engaging with. And the message that many of us have received growing up in the church is that, yes, Jesus can redeem your soul, but he cannot redeem your body. That if you have sex, it is the unforgivable sin. You will be damaged goods, you will be broken, and that Christ cannot redeem that part of your life. We've elevated it and said it's central. And we, we do this in so many different ways. If you just look at the list Paul gave of sexual sin and who doesn't inherit the kingdom of God, I mean, he lists a lot of other things besides sexuality. He, he lists greed and drunkenness. But for some reason, the church, we just kind of pluck out the, the, the part about sexual immorality and, and same-sex activity. And, and it, to be honest with you, I think sometimes we would rather talk about homosexuality out there than our own problems with money in here. And so we elevate sex and we say, this is the ultimate barometer of your relationship with God. But notice what Paul says after he lists all of these things. You see, well, before we get to that, actually, in promiscuity culture, how much you have sex determines your worth and your value. In purity culture, how little you have sex, how much you will power to have as little sex as possible determines your worth and value. But this is what Paul says in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. This is who was in his church. You were these people. You were these sexual immorality. You were the people who had affairs and addictions and were engaging with all of that. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying your sexual activity, your sexual desire no longer defines you. Your addictions, your activities, the things that you're, your affairs, none of that defines you. You are a child of God who has been washed clean. Your past no longer defines you. The blood of Jesus Christ has washed you clean and said that you are sanctified and justified by the power of Jesus. Your body is not irredeemable. Your past is not irredeemable. The power of the cross is sufficient for whatever sexual history any of us have. It does not define us. That is good news. See, what Paul is saying is that sex is not everything. As our culture and as our church often believes, Christ is everything. He's the one who defines us. He's the one who says who we are. We are his and we have been washed clean by his blood. And so Paul says sex is not everything. It's not about our identity. But the, there's another message that we see in culture, and it, this is primarily promiscuity culture, less so in purity culture. But, but we see this message that, that while sex is everything, sex is also nothing. 
Like, it just is nothing. It's, well, I'll see, you'll see what Paul says. He says in verse 12, he goes on and he says, I have the right to do anything, you say. He, he's quoting the argument of the Corinthian community and the Corinthian church. He says, you, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial for me. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So, so Paul's quoting the Corinthian argument that basically is saying, I can do whatever I want. It's my body, and as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, as long as I'm not harming anyone else, I can do what I want with my body. What's wrong with that? It's just sex. It's just sex. And they're making the same argument that our culture makes, that sex is just consent. It's just consent. It's just about making sure you have someone who who is willing to do what you want to do, and as long as you do that, as long as you're not harming anyone, then, then what's the big deal? It's the exact same argument our culture makes. But this is Paul's response. Not everything is beneficial. Just because you have the freedom to do something does not mean that you should do it. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's moral. Just because culture says you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And just because a nation gives its blessing to it does not mean the kingdom of God blesses it. Just because it feels good does not mean that harm is not being done. You see, and I think the truth is our culture understands what Paul is saying. We may not admit it all of the time. We often just hear sex is consent. But notice these articles. These are some of the articles just within the last six months that I've come across that our culture, and notice the places they're coming from, they're argument against this idea that sex is just consent. This is what people are finding out. People need better rules for sex from the New York Times. Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. This is from the Washington Post, which the the tagline of that article is, our consent first culture has left us liberated and miserable. Consent was never enough from the Atlantic. The sexual revolution has failed Generation X women from the critic And women have been betrayed by a culture of porn gone wild from the times. I mean, our culture is realizing we've gone full force into this vision. There's just consent. It doesn't matter as long as you're not harmed. And and it's not working. We've stepped into this freedom and this liberation, but it's not producing the flourishing that we desire. And so Paul says, like, it's not beneficial And you'll be enslaved to this thinking that you are stepping into freedom. Don't be mastered by it thinking it will lead to freedom. This is what John Mark Comer says about kind of this ideology of of sexual freedom. He says, we like to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. But to Jesus, that's not freedom. That's slavery. Freedom, at least in Jesus' mind, is the ability to do whatever you should to enjoy the world as God intended, and to live fully awake and alive. You see, the myth of the sexual liberation movement, the sexual revolution, is that the more liberated you are, the more satisfied you will be, and the better life that you will have. And what we are finding out is the opposite. That that is actually leading to slavery. Notice a couple statistics about our culture. One in five women will experience sexual assault. One in three women will experience sexual harassment. Over 50% of kids in our country are born outside of marriage. 
We have the highest divorce rates. We have highest addiction to pornography. And adults are having less sex than ever. That's not freedom. That's slavery. And many of us, many of us bear the scars and the wounds and the brokenness of a culture that has said, step into sexual liberation, you will be freed and you will experience salvation. And all we have found is brokenness, trauma, heartache, and wounds. And so Paul is warning this church, Corinthians and us, like, like just because you think there aren't anything that's damaging happening doesn't mean it's not damaging. And so Paul goes on to quote the second message of his culture and, and one that I think we see in promiscuity culture too. And, and that's this, the message that sex is just physical. It's just physical. It's just a biological urge. This is what he says in, in verse 13. He says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And a translation of that is basically what the people are saying to Paul is, hey, it's just a biological urge. If I'm hungry, I feed my stomach. If I'm horny, I have sex. Like, what's the big deal with that? It's just physical. It's just physical. There's nothing else. It's a biological, animalistic urge, and we should step into it and do it. And why would that be a problem? And this is Paul's response. He, he says that sex is way more than just physical. He goes on in, in verse 13, and he says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that the one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, now Paul is giving a lot of pushback in, in philosophical and very deep theological language. But, but at its core, what he is saying is sex is not just two bodies to coming together, it is two bodies and two souls becoming one flesh. The, the language of scripture, and when it talks about this, is as a melding together of flesh and soul. Two people becoming one person in this physical act. There's way more going on than just physical sex. This is how Sheila Gregor in her book, The Great Sex Rescue, highly recommend it. She says this, sex was created not only to be physically intimate, but to be an emotional and spiritual knowing as well. That's how scripture often talks about the act of sex is knowing. When all three types of intimacy are present, spiritual, emotional, and physical, each works in tandem with the others so that they feed one another. The more you laugh and feel close, the more you desire each other and make love. The more you make love, the more connected you feel, which makes your commitment stronger. And again, culture is finding this out. We've been promised that the more people you have sex with, the happier you will be. And what, what scientists and, and sociologists and psychologists are finding in studies is that when we have sex with someone, our, our body naturally releases two chemicals that, that kind of kick on our attachment system. It, it kicks online. And it forms attachment with the person that we're physically intimate with. 
And what they are finding, which is fascinating, is that the more people, the more partners you have, the less capable your body is of producing those two chemicals. And the more you experience the physical act of sex with one person, the more stronger that bond becomes between those two people. It's as if we were biologically designed for the intimacy that Paul is talking about. You see, that's the heart of what Paul is saying, is sex is not nothing. Sex is for the purpose of commitment and intimacy. That's what God designed it for. And if we step outside of that, then then he's just giving a warning that, that things might go wrong. You might experience harm. You might be wounded. There might be damage done. Now, this is so important because this is what purity culture got wrong. Just because, just because Paul is saying sex is more than just physical and that damage might be done if you step outside of the bounds of God's marriage and damage might happen, he is not saying, he is not saying that you are damaged goods. That is not what he is saying at all. You see, we've had this message in purity culture that God can redeem your soul and not redeem your body. But what did Paul say? He says part of the reason for all of this teaching is that Christ was raised from the dead and your body will be raised from the dead also. We have made sexual sin more powerful than the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our shame. Paul is saying that your body is not irredeemable. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus means that even if your soul has been damaged, it is not irredeemable and beyond the bounds of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is such good news for all of us who carry so many messages of shame and brokenness. Things that have been done to us and things that we have done in our past. See, our, our, our identity is not in what we have done, but in Christ's work on the cross. And, and it's fascinating. He uses language, the same u- language that he uses for, for sexual intimacy of two bodies and souls being melded together. He says, you are melded to Christ. You are united with Christ. That is our hope. And so that's a, a lot of theology about what sex is and what sex isn't. And the question for us is, okay, what do we do with this? Like, like how do we live this out? If sex is not everything and sex is not nothing, what does it mean for us to to faithfully live into this vision that Paul is giving? How how do we come towards a a vision of flourishing in Christ? And there's three points of application that that Paul gives to us. He says we need to flee sexual immorality. We need to love sacrificially. And we need to flourish with Christ. This begins in in verse 18 and 19. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Paul's basic argument is that if you are a follower of Jesus then you have been purchased by Christ 
And your body is no longer your own. And so you need to flee away from sexual immorality. You need to run away from it as fast as you can. Don't flirt with it. Don't engage with it. Run away from it as fast as you can. And Jesus kind of expounds on on how seriously we're supposed to take sexual sin in Matthew chapter 5. This is what he says in his Sermon on the Mount about sexuality and sexual immorality. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is where Jesus gets kind of serious. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And the middle school boys in the room all thanked their lucky stars that Jesus didn't go any further than eyes and hands, right? <laughs> we just, let's just thank God that this is where he stops. <sighs> Got to have a little fun with this, right? <laughs> So this is what Jesus is saying, is that you need to take sin so seriously that that you do whatever you can to cut it out of your life. Get drastic with it. And and so what does that look like practically today? What does it mean to flee sexual immorality or cut sexual immorality out of our lives? I mean, a lot of us have things like like covenant eyes on our phone, or or maybe you, you get rid of your phone altogether. Or maybe it's that you have to, to, to um, sorry, I lost my place. Um, <laughs> trying to get practical and I can't even think of what I'm saying. All right, here we go. Uh, maybe getting drastic with this is that you need to, to, to move offices from a coworker that, that you're too flirtatious with. Or, or maybe you need to get drastic and actually quit your job to protect your marriage. Right? Like I'm, Jesus is, is getting serious with this. I mean, if you're living with someone who's not your spouse, maybe you need to move into a different bedroom. What does it look like to cut us? I mean, some of us are uncomfortable because this is hard conversations. Are are we willing to get rid of our phones? But but it goes beyond that. Because all of that, it's just behavior modification. And one of the mistakes purity culture made is just willpower your way through it. You just need to do whatever you can to make sure you don't step into sexual immorality. And if you grew up in that culture, or if you've ever struggled with sexual sin and you're just trying to do all the right things, you know it doesn't work. Like behavior modification in this area does not fix things. Because core to what Jesus says is that it's not just about your behavior, it's a heart issue. If you look at someone sexually, then, then it's something going on in your heart. See, we like to modify behavior because it feels like the easy fix, but Jesus says that that we can sin sexually without even acting upon anything, that there's something wrong with our hearts. And so fleeing sexual immorality is not just about behavior modification, though some of those things can be helpful. It's about heart transformation. What Jesus is saying is that we need new hearts. And some of us have been struggling in this area of our lives in the same place over and over and over and over again for years. And nothing seems to work. And I wonder if part of the issue is that we just think it's about changing behavior, making sure we don't do the bad thing, instead of recognizing that there is something that is going on inside of us at a soul level. 
at a level of the depths of our heart that says those things will satisfy us more than a relationship with Jesus Christ. That that we will find satisfaction in all of these things instead of in the person of Jesus Christ. And so some of us need to begin the hard work of digging deep into our souls and asking the question, like, what do I think those things are offering me that Jesus can't? What things in my past have told me that those things will solve the longings of my heart instead of Jesus? And see, all of us, we need heart transformation, not just behavior modification. And I think the root of Paul's teaching on this, the, 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 the most practical thing I can give you, is found in verse 20. So Paul says, flee sexual immorality, and then he says this, you are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor gods with your body. And and Paul is really kind of hanging on to a lot of imagery and an illustration that the Corinthian people would have been very familiar with. Okay, in the Corinthian culture, it was very common to, to have sex with a prostitute, purchase someone who you could do whatever you wanted with. And what Paul is saying is that Christ, through his blood, has purchased you. You are no longer your own. You do what Christ commands you to do. He owns you, so honor him with your body. But he does not purchase you so he can do whatever he wants with you. He purchases you to set you free so you no longer have to live as a slave to sexual sin. That he has set you free. And so I I think the best, most practical thing you can do if you are struggling in this area is preach that gospel to yourself. Wake up in the morning and remind yourself that you have been purchased by the blood of Christ and what you do throughout your day is not up to you but up to Christ. You are his, so honor God with your body. That's a lot. I think you like the second thing Paul says a lot more than the first one, okay? Because the second thing Paul says is that the second application is that we need to fulfill our sexual duty. And this is what he says in verse 1 um, through 3 in chapter 7. He says, now for the matters you wrote about. And again, he quotes them. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, People have heard all of this teaching about sexuality and what Paul's saying. And, and so they basically say, well, I guess it's better. We just shouldn't have sex. Like, let's just not ever have sex. Like, we just need to stay away, flee sexual immorality. I'm married, but I will flee sexual immorality. And Paul says, that's not it. You're missing it. And so he goes on. He says, but since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise to her husband. Now, some of you have just found your new life verse, okay? You're like, that's a good verse. Can I get that tattooed? <laughs> like, Paul is basically saying, have lots of sex. If you are inside the design of God's intent for sex, then enjoy the gift of sex that God has given you. It, sex isn't bad. It's not something to run away from. In those like, boundaries, it can be really, really, really good. And so the kind of vision that Paul is painting for us, I think of what true sexual freedom can look like, is that we all have desires. We all have sexual desires. But, but Paul calls us to sacrificial love. 
that, that we're supposed to love our spouse sacrificially, and that when we care about their needs, their pleasure more than our own, within God's design, that leads to true sexual freedom, which is what we're looking for in all of these cultures like promiscuity and purity culture. And, and so what Paul is saying is that sexual satisfaction is not found in liberation or in morality, but in sacrificial love. God wants sex to be mutually loving and good experience for both partners. Now, in some sort of twisted way, we have taken Paul's command for sacrificial love between partners, care for your partner's needs, focus on your partner, and like kind of twisted that to say, hey, they need to love me, they need to give me what I want. Like we've taken this command to sacrificially love somebody else and, and used it as a command to kind of subjugate our spouses and say, they have to give me what I want when I want it. Paul said so. But it misses the heart and the intent of what Paul is talking about. He's not saying that, that your spouse has to meet all of your sexual needs and, and satisfy all of your sexual needs because you demand that of them. He's saying that you follow the way of Jesus and love them sacrificially, care for their needs above your own. So if they need a night off, give them a night off. Sorry to be explicit. But like, let's stop demanding that people meet our desires and baptize that with the Bible. All sorts of people have been harmed by this teaching being twisted. And that's not what Paul is getting at. What Paul's core message here is, is that the sexual act in marriage is a mirroring and a picturing of the intimacy and the sacrificial love that we have in Jesus Christ. That, that in the union of marriage, we are telling and demonstrating the truth of the gospel of God's intimacy with us and his self-giving love. That's the model for our sex lives within marriage. Now, you might be single today, and you might be hearing this and thinking, well, where does that leave me? Like, I, I get that I have to flee sexual immorality, but I don't get to flourish with my sex life. So, so what does that leave for me? And, and I think what Paul would say to you is that if marriage is this kind of reenactment of the gospel and demonstrates the, the love of, that Christ has for us, what single people within the church are called to is show the sufficiency of the gospel. And what I mean by that is this. In both Paul's culture and in our culture, we are, we are just sex-obsessed. I mean, the message is that the more sex you have, the more satisfied and fulfilled your life will be. But for the single and the celibate, you get to give the world a beautiful, beautiful picture that says ultimate satisfaction is not found in sexuality, but in the sufficiency of Christ and his love. That the intimacy you have with Jesus and the self-sacrificial love that he has shown you satisfies your life more than sex ever could. That is a hard command and a heavy burden, but it is a beautiful picture and a beautiful message to a world that is just running full tilt to pursue sexual liberation, thinking it will lead to freedom and it leads them to slavery. You are showing them the truth that the gospel is sufficient for you and for them, that our ultimate satisfaction is not found in sexual fulfillment, but in Christ and Christ alone. And as we wrap up today, 
we're going to come to the table of communion. And, and there are stations around the room, and I'll, I'll release you in just a moment to, to come to the table and experience it. We have to come to the table on a message like this. You have to end with the gospel and with Jesus. Because as we talk about this, there are so many things that are brought up within us. So many different messages we've heard, so much different shame that we have experienced. And and I'm reminded of a story that that Jesus has with this encounter he has with a woman at the well. And and what we know about the woman at the well, if you've heard this story before, is that that Jesus comes to her, and they're talking theology, and he says to her, it's kind of a bait-and-switch question, but he says, hey, if you want to talk some more, like, why don't you go get your husband, and then we can have a conversation about God and theology and what he's doing in the world. And the woman's response is this, I have no husband. And Jesus, being who he is, knows this and says, you're right, you don't have a husband, you've had five husbands, and the one you now live with is not your husband. You see, Jesus just knows everything. And and what he tells this woman is, is, who's probably been abused and misused and mistreated and cast aside and just gone from one person to another looking for something to satisfy her soul, what Jesus tells her is that what you have been looking for is me. That what you have been thirsting for is me. I am the living water, and when you drink of me, you will be satisfied. All the longings of your soul will be fulfilled. And she takes him up on that offer and finds out that it's true, that it's true. And then I love this part. She goes to her town, and she goes to the people that have known her, have known all of her past. She says, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Everything I ever did, he knew. And he still accepted me and loved me. See, some of us, we come to this topic and we think there have been things that we have done or that have been done to us that we have to hide from Jesus or make sure he doesn't know about or just pretend aren't there. And what this woman found is that Jesus knew it all and it didn't change a thing. And it does not for you and it does not for me. Because what Paul said is true. Not only does Jesus know it all, but Jesus paid it all. And so we can have the freedom and satisfaction in knowing that our Savior loves us. That when Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, it was broken for your sexual brokenness. And that when he said, this is my blood spilt for you, for the forgiveness of sins, That every sin that we have or could imagine or the thing that has happened to us has been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been bought. He paid it all. And now we can live in freedom. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that as we come to the table of Jesus Christ, that what Jesus said to the woman at the well that day would be true of our own lives. That in the bread broken for us, and in your blood that was shed for us, we would find true satisfaction that that you are the bread of life and the living water that satisfies the longing of our souls. God, anyone here today who is carrying the guilt and the shame and the burden of sexual immorality, whatever that might be, God, I pray that they would come to the table and experience your freedom, your goodness, and your grace. 
God, I pray for all of us that we would know the truth that Jesus paid our debt. He paid it all. God, I pray that we would honor you with our lives as a result of that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.